Hello and welcome to the first installment of AZ Law here on member-supported Sun Sounds of Arizona. I'm your volunteer reader, Paul Wyke, and we'll be exploring Arizona's legal and judicial system in this new program. Our primary focus will be articles about opinions from the Arizona Supreme Court, but we will also be keeping our eyes open for interesting decisions from Arizona's lower courts and from the federal courts. And we'll also include some original reporting on relevant topics, which will be published on our accompanying website, arizonaslaw.org. Some cases will be criminal, some constitutional, some civil, and we'll be keeping a special watch for articles and opinions that may affect our Sun Sounds of Arizona community. And there will be extras that may not always fit into our half-hour Sun Sounds program, the judges' opinions, interviews with the attorneys or the judges, etc. We'll let you know when to visit sunsounds.org to listen to those on-demand extras. I'm, ho- I'm hoping that I'm the ideal person to be hosting this new program. I started out as a news reporter and covered some significant court proceedings during that time. In fact, that's what led me towards a long and satisfying career in the law. I've been volunteering at SunSounds for several years now, and this will allow me to combine my interests and skills, my careers, and my passions. We have several articles today, but let's begin by breaking some news. These items, these two items, have not yet been reported in the rest of the media. First, Uh, Arizona has a brand new judge on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Of course, that's only one step below the U.S. Supreme Court. Her name is Bridget Beatty, and she was previously a magistrate judge here in Arizona. I happen to know Bridget, going back to our time in ASU's law school, and she told me recently that she had been sworn in last month and is currently undergoing the training process for the Ninth Circuit and hiring her law clerks and staff. She was confirmed last month by a bipartisan vote of 78 to 21. Her confirmation was the first bipartisan approval of a President Trump-nominated appellate judge this year, and she becomes one of only seven bipartisan confirmations during the entire Trump presidency. Per research by Arizona's Law and the Judicial Nominations blog, only four other Trump nominations for the appellate bench garnered more affirmative votes. Those were Judges Erickson, Richardson, St. Eve, and Scudder in the various Circuit Court of Appeals. She's the 37th confirmed Circuit Court judge nominated by President Trump, so most of those were on party-line votes. As Arizona's politics and Arizona's law has reported, Beatty's nomination likely drew more bipartisan support than the others because of her non-political background. In addition, Beatty's nomination was recommended to the Trump administration by previous Senators John McCain, the late John McCain, and Jeff Flake early last year. Arizona also has two other nominations in the queue, the Senate queue. Former counsel to Governor Doug Ducey has been nominated for a U.S. District Court position here in Arizona. Mike Bailey, the former chief deputy to Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich, has been tapped for the position of U.S. Attorney for the District of Arizona. That position has been vacant. There's been an acting and an interim, and, uh, and uh, he is now the interim, actually, pending the Senate's vote. Also, another breaking story that you can find on ArizonasLaw.org, Joe Arpaio asks court to sanction Democratic representatives for a quote-unquote bogus brief regarding the Trump pardon. Former Sheriff Joe Arpaio is accusing a group of Democratic Congress members of filing a sham pleading and has asked the Ninth Circuit judges to sanction the representatives. The the 25 members of Congress filed an amicus brief opposing Arpaio's effort to use his presidential pardon to wipe out his criminal conviction for contempt of court. 
The U.S. Supreme Court had declined to hear the longtime Maricopa County Sheriff's request to remove a special prosecutor appointed by the court to argue that Donald Trump's 2017 pardon of his friend and supporter Arpaio should not erase the trial judge's findings. The representatives filed their friend of the court brief to also support that argument. The amicus brief argued that the judicial branch has the right to protect its its uh, its right to impose criminal contempt of court penalties as a form of self-protection, noting that Congress has similar rights. It notes that a presidential pardon is only appropriate in a contempt of court situation if the penalty was too harsh or was an evident mistake. Arpaio attempts to argue that the representatives and their attorneys knew or should have known that the president's power to pardon is absolute and that neither Congress nor the judiciary can interfere with it. Both briefs cite Supreme Court cases going back to the mid-1800s as part of their legitimate arguments. However, Arpaio believes that the representative's amicus brief is so frivolous that it warrants a rare imposition of sanctions. It would be even more rare against the filers of just an amicus brief, not one of the parties. The pardon its appeal itself is being handled by Arizona attorneys Dennis and Jack Willinchick and Mark Goldman. However, for this latest go-for-sanctions move, Arpaio has enlisted the the nationally known Larry Clayman to pursue the members of Congress. Clayman, you may recognize the name, is also handling Arpaio's defamation claims against the New York Times, CNN, and other media outlets, and those are currently awaiting rulings on multiple motions to dismiss. Arizona representatives Raul Grijalva and Ruben Gallego are among the two dozen representatives who signed on to the amicus brief. We have requested their reactions, and we'll let you know if we hear from them in the next, uh, before the next program. Now let's go to an article from the Arizona Republic from a couple of weeks ago about an Arizona Supreme Court case. The headline is, Judges Can Overrule Parents on Treatment for Transgender Children, the Arizona Supreme Court Rules. It's reported by Maria Paletta. Here it is. Arizona judges can require parents to provide counseling, therapy, and other expert help to children who may be transgender, even if one parent does not support treatment, the state's highest court ruled. But the courts can only intervene when a child would be at risk for physical danger or significantly impaired emotionally with without access to those services. That would be a higher standard than the best interest test that is often used in family court cases. The unanimous ruling partially overturns an April 2018 appeals court decision that highlighted the challenges of mediating battles between parents who differ on how to handle kids exploring their gender identities. As of last year, clashes over how to support those children had revived custody fights in nearly 10 other states. This is an important decision that will provide family courts with more guidance about when to issue orders limiting the authority of a parent with legal custody and about the need to tailor such orders carefully, said attorney Taylor Young, who argued the case before the Arizona Supreme Court. Family court judges must be able to protect children from harm, Young said. Thursday's decision followed a years-long court battle involving a divorced Arizona couple, identified in the court documents as Paul E. and Courtney F., to protect the privacy of their three children. The couple initially shared custody of the kids and had equal parenting time, but after the mother in 2013 began allowing their male child, who is identified only as L, to wear a skirt to school, the father took his ex-wife to court. 
The mother indicated that L had long demonstrated a preference for stereotypically female items at that point and would wear female clothing at home. The father instead argued that the mother was pushing a female gender identification on L and asked for sole legal custody and for L to live with him full time, which he ultimately won. In the meantime, a family court judge implemented sweeping orders forbidding the mother to discuss gender-related issues at home, to dress Elle in female clothing, to let the child have any female-oriented toys, or to refer to Elle as her, she, or a girl. Those injunctions were described as temporary, but they remained in place for more than two years, despite a psychologist, physician, and psychotherapist independently diagnosing Elle with gender dysphoria. The clinical term refers to lasting distress caused by a conflict between the gender a person is assigned based on anatomy and the gender that that person feels. The American Association of Pediatrics recommends providing comprehensive gender-affirming and developmentally appropriate health care in a safe and inclusive clinical space to children with that diagnosis, as well as family-based therapy and support for parents and siblings. It notes that children with gender dysphoria face an increased risk of depression, anxiety, and suicide when they face rejection from their families or feel they have no place to authentically explore their identities. Indeed, more than a year after the court began policing Elle's gender expression at home, court records show the child made statements about dying and threatened or engaged in self-harm. The family court judge tried to minimize the danger to Elle by mandating treatment with a specific counselor and gender expert and by prohibiting the parents from discussing gender identity issues with their child. But the appeals court last year overturned those orders, calling the limitations a severe micromanagement of mother and father's parenting in its ruling. In its Thursday opinion, the Supreme Court generally agreed the family court judge had overstepped, noting that while the father initially had resisted L's desire to gender explore, he later agreed to therapy for both L and himself. Absent evidence demonstrating that father would choose an unqualified or ineffective therapist or gender expert, the law did not authorize the court to select a specific therapist and expert, the ruling says. But it disagreed that courts cannot mandate therapy or treatment at all, finding that such orders appropriate if a child would otherwise be physically endangered or suffer significant educational impairment. It asked the family court to revisit that element of the case and see if L's situation would meet that threshold. If the court makes any or all of these endangerment findings, it may order father to continue L's therapy, retain a gender expert, and or permit L to gender explore, the Supreme Court concluded. Shannon Minter, legal director at the National Center for Lesbian Rights, said the center was pleased that the Arizona Supreme Court affirmed that family court judges have the flexibility to craft custody orders that protect children from harm, including requiring supportive counseling and care. The center was a party to the case. This is particularly important for transgender children who require specialized health care to address their unique needs, Minter said, whether they know they are transgender or simply have conflicting feelings about their identities. Catherine Kuvalanka, an associate professor of family science at Miami University who pioneered research on custody fights involving trans children, also called Thursday's ruling a win. She said studies have consistently shown that acceptance and support is imperative for this population and that a lack of acceptance and rejection often has tragic results.
The ruling has the potential to raise awareness among family court professionals about the responsibility to be knowledgeable about the research pertaining to the well-being of transgender and gender-diverse youth, she said. Researchers have repeatedly identified judges who took it upon themselves uh, to decide whether a child had gender dysphoria rather than relying on medical experts. This decision is a step in the right direction, Kuvalanka said. And that was the report from Maria Paletta. There was an opinion piece a couple of days later in the Arizona Republic by Robert Robb, one of their columnists, who disagreed. The headline for that is Transgender Ruling could make Arizona custody cases even more difficult. It has, it does repeat some of the facts from the article, but I think it's important to get the opinion. So let's go ahead and read the entire thing. A recent Arizona Supreme Court decision was widely depicted as a ruling on transgender rights. That is a testament to the extent to which identity, identity politics dominates the discussion, at least in some circles. In reality, however, the ruling was about parental rights in family court. The decision, a unanimous opinion written by Justice Ann Timmer, strove mightily to make it such before faltering at the end. The case involved a child diagnosed with gender dysphoria. The child is currently just 12 years old. The dispute between his divorced parents regarding this began when he was five. The father has been awarded sole legal decision-making authority, but in so doing, a judge issued highly prescriptive orders regarding the gender dysphoria. A particular therapist and gender expert were mandated by the judge. Both parents were denied intercession with them. Both were under gag orders about discussing the subject with their child. The father appealed, asserting that these restrictions violated his sole legal decision-making authority. State law permits such limitations only when necessary to prevent the endangerment of a child's physical health or a significant impairment of a child's emotional development. Although the father at one point expressed skepticism about the gender dysphoria, he has long supported and arranged therapy for the child regarding it. The decision flatly states that there is no evidence that the father will exercise his sole legal decision-making authority in a way that endangers or impairs the child, and the potential for harm due to mismanaging the gender dysphoria is not equivalent to finding that absent a specific limitation, the child would be put at risk for harm or suffer harm. That was a quote from the opinion. So the high court followed the Court of Appeals in nullifying the gag and intercession orders. The Court of Appeals vacated the entire order and had left the treatment of the child's gender dysphoria up to the father. The finding that there was no evidence that the father would do so in a way that threatened the child would suggest that the high court would do the same. But it flinched, saying that a family court judge could order treatment, just not specify the providers or restrict parental involvement. While I think the court was trying to uphold parental rights even in delicate situations, this crafts a broader exception than contemplated by the statute. If there is no evidence of bad parenting, or even any real risk of bad parenting, what is the basis for a judge to impose conditions on the custodial parent? The intervention of the state in family matters is fraught with difficulty. This decision, while probably intended to provide clarity and limitations, might make it even more fraught. And that was an opinion piece on the Arizona Supreme Court ruling. It was written by Robert Robb and published in the Arizona Republic. 
Well, next, let's turn to an article from Howard Fisher of Capital Media Services, which is syndicated in newspapers across the state. And uh, this was earlier this month. Arizona Supreme Court will not hear the attorney general's argument against how tuition is set. Here is the article. The Arizona Supreme Court rebuffed the latest bid by Attorney General Mark Burnovich to have the method of setting tuition at the state's three universities be declared unconstitutional. Without comment, the justices refused to hear his arguments that the Arizona Board of Regents is acting illegally by essentially deciding first how much they want to charge, or how much they think they can charge, and then justifying the amount later. Those factors, Brnovich said, include everything from median Arizona income and the availability of student loans to what state-run peer universities in other states are charging. Brnovich said the Arizona Constitution requires the board to determine how much it costs to educate students and then set the tuition based on that, coupled with how much money the legislature appropriates. With its unconstitutional tuition-setting policy, ABOR, or the Board of Regents, has abandoned its duty to serve as a check on the university presidents and has engaged in an unprecedented series of lockstep tuition hikes across Arizona's three public universities that has resulted in a 16-year tuition increase of over 300 percent at each school. That was written by Assistant Attorney General Bo Roysden. Strictly speaking, the decision by the high court to refuse his petition does not end the dispute. In fact, attorneys for the Board of Regents urged the justices not to get involved, at least for the time being, pointing out that Brnovich has nearly identical claims awaiting review at the Court of Appeals. But the refusal of the Supreme Court to intercede now could prove crucial. In a ruling last year, Maricopa County Superior Court Judge Connie Contes ruled Brnovich has no legal right to bring a challenge to the tuition set for the state's three universities or even the policies used to come up with those numbers. Contes concluded that Brnovich can file such lawsuits only when he has specific legislative authority or permission of the governor. In this case, the judge concluded he had neither. It is that ruling that is awaiting action by the State Court of Appeals. But the Attorney General all but conceded that if the appellate judges find that Contus is right that he has no authority to bring the claim, then his efforts to fight the Regents and the tuition could come to a halt. In his petition to the Supreme Court, Brnovich told the justices that taking the case directly to them is possibly the only way to obtain judicial review in asserting and obtaining relief on these claims. There was no immediate response from the Attorney General's office. At the heart of the legal fight is a constitutional provision that mandates that instruction at our Arizona's state universities shall be nearly as nearly free as possible. ABOR nonetheless adopted a tuition-setting process that did not consider the cost of instruction as a factor when setting tuition, but rather looked at other factors, such as students' ability to pay by taking on debt, his lawsuit charges. Subsequently, the tuition has skyrocketed at Arizona's three public universities. Brnovich also is challenging what he said is higher tuition for part-time and fully online students, as well as what he said are illegal mandatory fees unrelated to instruction. Even if Brnovich can eventually get a court to conclude he has a legal right to sue, that still leaves him with a significant hurdle. More than a decade ago, the state Supreme Court dismissed a lawsuit filed by some university students challenging a 39% year-over-year increase in tuition. The justices said the issue of tuition is a 
quote-unquote political question that is beyond the reach of the courts. Brnovich, however, said his lawsuit is different as it challenges not the level of tuition, but how it is set. The appellate court will hear his appeal of the contest ruling later this month. And that was the article by Howard Fisher, Arizona Supreme Court won't hear AG's argument against how tuition is set. Well, next we have an article. Let's see. Let's go to this article from the Arizona Republic. This was reported a couple weeks ago by Uriel Garcia of the Arizona Republic. Phoenix must pay $1.5 million to police sergeant in hostile workplace lawsuit. A Phoenix police sergeant who faced retaliation after helping a female officer report sexual harassment by a different sergeant has won a $1.5 million lawsuit against the city. After a six-day trial in U.S. District Court in Phoenix, a jury determined Sergeant Jeffrey Green's supervisor did retaliate against him, and Phoenix was ordered to pay. Green has been with the Phoenix Police Department since 1994. According to the lawsuit filed in 2015, a female officer told Green that a different sergeant had touched her between her legs at an off-duty event. Green's supervisor told him the department needed to get rid of the woman because of the complaint she filed, according to the lawsuit. But Green had responded, boss, you can't say that, that's retaliation, the lawsuit states. The case highlights an all-too-common issue that is underreported out of fear of retaliation, Green's attorney Stephen Montoya said. These cases, taking on the police department, is really, really hard, he said in a phone interview with the Arizona Republic. It is absolutely a big victory, big and worthwhile victory. Montoya said he and Green are happy with the outcome, but it is ultimately a loss for Phoenix taxpayers. It's the public money and they get away with it, Montoya said. People usually don't find out about it, so they, the city, gets away with it. Phoenix could still appeal the ruling to a higher court. Nick Valenzuela, Phoenix spokesperson, said he could not comment on the case because city officials are still working on the case. Sergeant Vince Lewis, a spokesman for the Phoenix Police Department, provided a statement saying neither the city of Phoenix nor the Phoenix Police Department will tolerate sexual harassment in the workplace. We support a culture of respect and positive behavior and encourage the reporting of inappropriate behavior at any level. Lewis did not answer questions about whether any officers were disciplined regarding this case, including the sergeant originally accused of touching the female officer. He told the Republic to file a public records request for disciplinary documents. The Republic did so, but the documents were not available as of this report. In April of 2012, the female officer who worked at the police department for 10 years before she resigned in 2014 went to Green to report that a different sergeant had touched her between her legs at a wedding, according to court records and Montoya. After filing the complaint internally with the help of Sergeant Green, she filed a discrimination complaint with the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. She wrote in the complaint that co-workers refused to help her in work duties that required more than one officer and that her boss tried to transfer her out of the robbery unit. Three years later, an investigator with the commission wrote a letter to the police department saying the officer was subjected to a hostile work environment in retaliation for filing an internal sexual harassment complaint. 
Green filed his complaint in November of 2012. He said his boss told him in July of 2012 to get rid of the female officer for the sexual harassment complaint. Green refused, according to the complaint. His boss tried to find other reasons to fire the woman, his complaint states. In August of 2012, two officers made an internal complaint saying that the woman made inappropriate comments on their Facebook pages. Green investigated but did not find any wrongdoing on the woman's part, the complaint states. Green's boss told him to punish her anyway for those remarks. According to the complaint, Green refused. Green's boss then put Green on administrative leave because he refused to punish her, according to the complaint. And that's the end of the article uh, that was reported by Uriel Garcia of the Arizona Republican. Remember that uh, it says, according to the complaint, but Phoenix, uh, the, it was post-trial, Phoenix was ordered to pay $1.5 million to the police sergeant in that hostile workplace uh, lawsuit. And we just checked the current status of the case, and we can tell you that post-verdict motions are still going on. The judge has not yet decided the city of Phoenix's motion to set aside that verdict. Obviously, any decision to appeal the verdict to the Ninth Circuit would come up after Judge Humitua's rulings on those motions. And it looks like we have just enough time for one brief uh, article. This is from Arizona'sLaw.org as well. And it is uh, Arizona asking the U.S. Supreme Court for permission to sue the state of California for stealing some of its tax revenues. Here's the article. The U.S. Supreme Court has docketed a request from Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich to permit the state to sue neighboring California for stolen tax revenues. The proposed complaint alleges that California unconstitutionally taxes Arizona LLCs for doing business in California, even if that LLC is only an investor in another company doing business in the Golden State. The U.S. Constitution... Article 3, Section 2 of the U.S. Constitution makes the Supreme Court the initial and the only court when one state is suing another, and Arizona filed its request for permission to file the complaint on Thursday, I believe that was uh, in later March. Arizona cites examples of California taxing Arizona LLCs and even trying to levy against Arizona banks to collect the taxes. Arizona estimates that California's quote-unquote extraordinarily aggressive policies of costing Arizona nearly $500,000 each year in lost tax revenues. And that would be because those businesses pay California and then deduct it from their Arizona taxes. Arizona would also seek refunds to the more than 13,000 Arizona LLCs that have paid more than $10 million per year to California. And yes, Arizona believes that other states and their LLCs have been similarly affected. We can also report that uh, California has uh, another couple of weeks to answer Arizona's motion to file this lawsuit in the Supreme Court. And several uh, friend of the court briefs have been filed supporting Arizona's position. And with that, we come to the conclusion of this first edition of Arizona's Law, AZ Law. Your comments and suggestions to make this program better are, of course, welcome. You can contact us at info at sunsounds.org. I'm your volunteer reader and Arizona attorney, Paul Wyke, thanking you for tuning in and urging you to keep listening to member-supported Sun Sounds of Arizona. Mm-hmm.